Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And hopefully you brought your Bible. Open your Bible to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 19 through 28. Hey, Stephen, come back out here a second, man, as we get this started. And uh, are y'all thankful for our worship team leading us to behold and adore Christ? Yeah, you are? Uh, I'm thankful for this guy. I'm thankful. That was a powerful time of worship. And I was thinking... I was thinking as I was preparing this week, do you know, do y'all know what would be really, really lame? It'd be really lame if Stephen came out here on a Sunday morning and he said to all of you, hey, welcome to Gospel City Church. Oh, don't, don't stand, just stay in your seats. And then he went on to just kind of talk about himself. If you went on to talk about yourself and then you were like, hey, stay seated. I'm gonna sing some songs that are important to me. And then the songs that he went on to sing had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with salvation, nothing to do with the savior. They were just kind of his favorite songs about life and all of that. That'd be pretty lame. We, we would feel a little gypped off at church this morning and you'd be like, that's not what a worship leader does. A worship leader does that as merely an artist looking for fame and his own glory. But a good worship leader is someone who stands between the people and Jesus and says, hey, come with me, look at him, sing to him, let's exalt Jesus. And, and I know that a, a good worship leader who's doing his job walks off the platform every week hoping that he propped up Jesus Christ and that he disappeared into the backdrop because the glory of Christ was radiating among God's people. Thank you for leading us that way, brother, and uh, for always doing that. But, and, and here's the thing, as we get into our text for today, we step into the first narrative now of the gospel of John that's been recorded for us. So we've made it through the glorious prologue, which is just packed with doctrine and theology. And the first narrative that the apostle John gives us, he introduces us to a type of worship leader. Someone standing between the people and Jesus, declaring, look to Jesus, look at him. Don't look at me, look to Christ. And we see a testimony recorded in this first narrative in the gospel of John. And I was thinking about it this week. And I was like, it's kind of funny that the apostle John records someone's testimony about Jesus before Jesus even shows up on the scene. And yet the more I thought about it, the more appropriate I thought it was because uh, the, the renown of Jesus, the fame of Jesus, the person of Jesus, his reputation should precede his coming. That's exactly what we're doing when we talk about Jesus and when we sing to Jesus, we're proclaiming all that he is before he comes again. Well, John the Baptist showed up no differently and he proclaims all that Jesus is. And for any and all who know Jesus, our testimony should be everything that we will see in John the Baptist's testimony today. For John who knew Jesus, he wasn't concerned with his reputation at all, but he was solely concerned with who was coming after him and his opportunity to proclaim Christ was also his chance to declare who he was not. John was not interested in who he was. He was interested in you hearing who Jesus was. Uh, kind of appropriate because we're talking about John the Baptist. You know how when we, do, when we do baptisms here at Gospel City, we have people get into the water. And what do they do first? Before they get dunked, they share their testimony. Not every church does that. I think that's a really important um, tradition that we do whenever we get people in the baptistry because the water's not saving you. The act of getting dunked is not saving you. What gives you the right to get in that water and give everybody a picture of what Christ has done in your life is the testimony that you tell. This is all that I was without Jesus. 
and this is all that Jesus has done for me. I don't want you to hear about what I'm doing. I want you to hear about what Jesus has done. It'd be really lame if someone got in the baptistry and was like, hey, I want, I'm thankful, thank you that you're here today. I'd love to tell you about what a good person I've been. I helped some people. I gave some money to the homeless. I helped some elderly across the street. And I'm just doing a really good job at life. And so I'm here to baptize today to thank myself. That'd be pretty lame, wouldn't it? <laughs> but someone who has a testimony for Christ is someone eager to share all that they are not and all that Jesus is and all that he's done to rescue them. So the big idea that I want to draw out of this first narrative in John with you today is this. A true testimony for Christ reminds me who I am so I can point to Jesus. A true testimony of Jesus Christ. I pray that you have a true testimony of Christ. I pray that by the end of this gathering that you would have a true testimony for Jesus Christ. And that you would be able to boldly declare all that you are not so that you could point to Jesus. A true testimony for Christ reminds me who I am so I can point to Jesus. Let's look in God's word at John chapter 1 starting in verse 19. It says this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to your holy word once again, first day of the week with your people, and it is an honor to hear you speak. Spirit, I pray that you would go before me, that you would open our hearts and ears and our minds to comprehend the scriptures today. Lord, I pray that you would take every meaning and, and the deep, rich context that we find ourselves in as John the Baptist shows up on the scene. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would illuminate it to our hearts so that we know what to do with it today. And, and spirit, I've been praying that you would help believers to have a boldness, a, a, a restored, fresh boldness to declare their testimony of Jesus Christ, to boldly declare all that they are not in order to declare all that you are. And Lord, I've been praying that you would allow the testimony of John the Baptist to call some of us to repentance this morning, uh, to stop hiding, to stop making life about ourselves, but to start lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves to exalt Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Spirit, I pray for those in this room today, those who are listening from afar, who have an unregenerate heart. Lord, I pray for those who do not know Jesus, who have not surrendered their life to follow Jesus, who do not have a testimony of Jesus Christ and spirit in your sovereign grace and kindness. Would you open someone's hearts today to receive Jesus and believe in his name and be given the right to be a child of God. 
Bring people from death to life, even here in our midst, through the power of your word. And meet us as we honor it today. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we get it going this morning, let me give you some context around John the Baptist, okay? We, we were introduced to him in the prologue in those few verses, verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. And it, we learned that he is not the true light. That's Jesus. But he came to bear witness about the light. So in John the Baptist, we saw a picture of Christian ministry. All of us should be like John the Baptist. We should be ready to get on the, on the pedestal and to declare all that Jesus is, bear witness about the light. Now this, in Matthew, it talks about his appearance. Matthew 3 verse 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and honey. <laughs> so guy sounds a little crazy. Guy sounds a little wild. Long hair, big beard, wearing camel hair and a belt. And, and he's like a warrior, desert dweller, eating bugs. Not the kind of typical messenger that the Jewish people were paying attention to. He wasn't wearing the big fancy pious hat that the Pharisees probably wore and the traditional tunics. This man looked like Mowgli out of Jungle Book, Okay. And then John the Baptist, he's the cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus, whose mother was Elizabeth. And Mary visited Elizabeth in Luke chapter one. And it says that when Mary went to visit Elizabeth in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaped for joy when he learned in the womb that his cousin Jesus was in Mary's womb. So this boy was jacked about Jesus before he even got to planet earth, just fired up. And then Jesus says to him in Matthew chapter seven, get this, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Pretty awesome compliment to get from Jesus himself. None is greater than this man, John the Baptist, this crazy desert dweller. Now, bear with me for a second. Probably the best summation I could give you of John the Baptist was written in 1995. And some of you will get this, some of you probably won't, but I just could not let it go this week. It just was running through my brain. So you can put your hands together with me for a second. It goes like this. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume wasn't too much left in his upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak till the king took the head of this Jesus freak. We got that from, that was from DC Talk in 1995. The, the popular song, Jesus Freak, the Bible put to lyrics and melody. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Toby Mac. Okay, so uh, now this crazy Jesus jacked, Uncle Cy looking man of God was drawing quite the crowd on day one of John's gospel account. So verse 28 of the passage that we're looking at, it says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, it's tough to say exactly where this was, but it's speculated that it was like a 20-plus-mile rugged hike outside of Jerusalem. Not a convenient place to go. Not a place that you're like, oh, let's go hang out there for the day, unless there's something going on. And apparently, John the Baptist and his testimony was something to see. So Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6 records this for us. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, going out to John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
So it appears that a lot of people, towns worth of people were making their way into the desert to see this wild baptizer in his natural habitat. And that even includes the Jewish leaders where our text picks up today. So look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the Pharisees, the self-righteous religious leaders who were not saved at all, they were more about themselves than and the law than a relationship with Jesus. Jesus actually comes and he condemns them. We'll see that as we get into the gospel of John, but they send in the big guns. Go check out this spiritual nonsense that's happening out in the desert. And they send out the priests and the Levites, but they ask a pretty important question. They go to John the Baptist and they say, who are you? And I would venture to say that there's a lot of people in this room. It's a packed house today. There's a lot of people in this room who have wrestled with the question, who are you? I'd venture to say that there's a lot of people in this room who have tried a lot of things as you've tried to figure out who you are. You've tried some different substances. uh, You've tried different religions. uh, You've tried doing things your own way, trying to answer the question, who are you? Maybe you're still searching for that answer today. See, John the Baptist's example, it can help you because a true testimony of Christ reminds me who I am so that I can point to Jesus, the purpose of this life. So here's point number one that I want to draw out of the text with you. Knowing who you're not reminds you that life's not about you. Knowing who you are not reminds you that life is not about you. So These Jewish leaders show up on the scene. They first pepper him with three questions to which John responds who he is not. John's first answer to their question, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. I I just love the emphatic repetition that's been recorded for us. It shows John's confidence and his adamant persistence to make sure that we know who he is not. And the first question that the leaders ask him is, are you the long-awaited Mashiach of the Jewish people? Are you the Messiah? Which seems like a crazy question to ask a crazy man who's eating bugs out in the wilderness. But if you remember, there were 400 years of silence. And then there's prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy for the Jewish people that a seed of a woman would come to crush the head of a serpent. And we're going to have this Savior come and the Jewish Messiah is going to come. People are ignorant. In that 400 years of silence, do you think that people were using it for their own gain? Absolutely. Crazy people all the time showing up on the scene saying, I'm Jesus. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. Follow me. Put your hope in me. I'll take you to Yahweh. Even Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Even on this side of the cross, the last three centuries worth. I fell down a rabbit hole reading some of the stories this week. There are a lot of people who have claimed to be Jesus even in the last hundred years. I don't think these religious leaders going up to John the Baptist actually thought he was the Messiah, but they assumed that's what he was going to say. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And they they were going to refute him. They were going to put an end to it. They were going to arrest him for blasphemy. But the writer of John is sure to tell us, and John the Baptist was sure to tell all of them that he is definitely and emphatically not the Christ. So they go to the second question in verse 21. And they asked him, what then are you Elijah? To which he responds, 
I am not. Now, I want you to bear with me in this section of the, the message because I got some information to unpack, okay? But there's a few reasons why they would have went here next. Why would they ask if he's Elijah after the Messiah? A few reasons. One, he looked like him. In, first, in 2 Kings 1.8, it says this, uh, the, the leaders answered a king, and they said about this other crazy man who was in the desert, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, it's Elijah of the Tishbite. So Elijah the Tishbite dressed like John the Baptist. Also, they were located in the same kind of place, meaning they were both desert dwellers, both eating locusts, both eating honey, and then they both come doing the same thing. They were both preaching repentance when Israel had turned from God. John the Baptist is preaching it and he's baptizing people who are repenting, preparing the way for Jesus. And in 1 Kings 18, 21, it says this, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So two very similar people, Elijah John the Baptist, but there's even more reason that they would have suspected this. The Jews were expecting, still are expecting Elijah to return. So there's this prophecy in Malachi chapter four, verse five, and it says this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So as these Levites show up on the scene and ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? They're, they're really saying, are you Elijah the prophet coming to usher in the awesome day of the Lord. I thought it was interesting to note this week that even at a Jewish um, Seder dinner, a traditional Jewish Seder dinner to this day, there's always an empty chair at the table. And it's known as the chair of hope or Elijah's chair. The Jews are waiting for Elijah to show up because when Elijah the prophet shows up, then Jesus was coming. And the Jews only had context for one coming of their king who was going to restore power to Israel. They didn't have context for two comings, Jesus who would come first. So John answers their question, I am not Elijah, which is totally good unless you go to Matthew chapter 11, verses 14 through 15. Let me show you this. Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come and he who has ears, let him hear. So how do we reconcile this? John the Baptist is saying, I'm not Elijah. Jesus is saying he is Elijah. Here's a few things. Either John the Baptist was not familiar that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah, which seems unlikely, don't you think? Because John the Baptist clearly knows his role. Even from the womb, he was excited about Jesus. John the Baptist is simply deflecting the glory and accolade of being such a figure, which speaks to John's humility because he's constantly saying, give me less of myself, give me more of Jesus. But most likely, John the Baptist is simply declaring he is not the literal historical Elijah that they were looking for, though he was a typological, metaphorical Elijah that was sent to usher in the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming of our Lord. The disciples were confused about it too. It's kind of confusing. Matthew chapter 17 helped me this week. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. So there's probably another typological Elijah. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John 
the Baptist. So the blind Jewish leaders, they not only miss the Elijah type ushering in the coming of the king and they cut off his head, they killed him, but they were about to miss their very own Messiah, their very own suffering servant who was following John the Baptist and they were gonna kill him too by nailing him on a cross. What did the prologue say? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So John declares he's not Elijah. Verse 21, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So notice it's a capital P on prophet. The prophet is another reference for Christ or the Messiah. It takes us back to Deuteronomy where Moses is saying that there's gonna come another prophet like Moses to usher people out of exile, out of Egypt, out of slavery and free them. So John the Baptist declares he's not the Christ, he's not Elijah, and he's not the prophet. So what's the point to all of that? You're probably wondering that. Why all the information? Knowing who you're not will help you point to Jesus. Come with me for a minute. More specifically, speaking, when you, when you know that you are not God, you will be able to surrender to the one true God. And there's people in the room today and you're like, I know I'm not God. I've never claimed to be Jesus. I've never claimed to be the Messiah. But if you got painfully honest about your life, the first commandment that God gave, thou shall have no other gods before me. And you probably just zoom over that one because you're like, I'm a Christian. I don't have any other gods. But if you got painfully, painfully honest about your life, you would come to see that the things that dominate your mind, the things that dominate your thoughts, the things that you're constantly searching for and you get anxious over have become idols in your life. And and we humans are just very guilty of thinking about ourselves too much, of making this life about ourselves, making this life about what we can get our hands on when we're actually nothing apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some of us know that we think way too much of ourselves or or we think way too highly of ourselves. And you're like, yep, that's my problem. I wake up thinking about myself. I go to bed thinking about myself. I complain about things that don't go my way all the time. I have a God problem because I think I am God. There's some in the room and you would say, that's not my problem. I I think down on myself all the time. I'm actually mostly frustrated with the person that I am. Here's the thing about humans, whether we think too highly of ourselves or we constantly beat ourselves up and think down about ourselves, the resounding truth is we are consumed with us. But when you know that life is not about you, you will be able to point to the one through whom life exists. John the Baptist, he wasn't concerned with his reputation. He did not care about what he looked like, didn't care about what he was wearing, didn't care about what he was dressed like, didn't care that the religious leaders were showing up on the scene and he was wearing camel hair and he had bugs in his teeth. He didn't care about the opportunity to even grab on to fame or the accolades that were presented to him. Like he could have said, yeah, I am the Christ and got some following for a minute. He could have said, I am Elijah. And he could have took that, Renowned, But John knew that apart from Jesus, he could do nothing. So he proclaimed all that he was not so that he could proclaim all that Jesus is. And what I want you to hear this morning, that is why you're here. That's why you're breathing. 
That's the purpose that you need. Knowing who you're not will remind you that life is not about you so that you can make much of Jesus. You need a purpose this morning. God's got your purpose. He's restored your life so that you can have a testimony to tell about everything that you were before Christ, who you're not today, and all that Christ is and has done to redeem your soul. That brings us to the second point from the text. Knowing who Jesus says you are helps you point to all that he is. Knowing who Jesus says you are will help you point to all that he is. So verse 22 goes on. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Can you sense that they're a little perturbed with John's answers? We asked you who you are. You told us who you're not. And he's given them one word answers. How many of you hate like one word text messages? You ask somebody, they just give you a no. You're like, I'm trying to help you out. Hit me with a paragraph. Hit me with a sentence back. I don't need your LOLs and your ROFLs. And maybe that's just me. John the Baptist answers the question, who are you? with God-breathed words from the book of Isaiah. Look at it. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. It's really a pretty profound answer. I'm kind of surprised John doesn't record their response at all. But if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to go there. Isaiah chapter 40, 1 through 5. And here's what I want you to know about this book of Isaiah. A very important Old Testament prophecy to the Jews. And in chapters 1 through 39, that's a lot of chapters. Chapters 1 through 39 of the book of Isaiah. They have every, everything that they deal with in those first 39 chapters is Israel in distress. Israel, the sinful nation, Israel, the unfaithful city, Israel under judgment and oppression, Israel in exile, Israel attacked by Babylon. Not a lot of good things going on in Isaiah 1 through 39. A lot of distress for God's people, Israel. But when it goes to chapter 40 and chapters 40 through 66, the theme turns to a hope that is to come. In the midst of your despair... A lot of hope is coming down the pike. And so it records the hope of a savior that's to come. It records the hope of a suffering servant who would die in the place of the guilty. It records the hope of Babylon overthrown, which is metaphorical to our Babylon, our digital world that we live in being overthrown by Christ and the sinfulness of this world having no hold on us. Isaiah 40 through 66 records the hope of Israel's complete restoration and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. But preceding all of that hope in those 20 chapters is the prophecy that a, a voice was about to come and prepare the way for the hope. A messenger would be sent to you to prepare for the hope that's to come. So look at Isaiah 40. After all of that distress communicated in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. I mean, man, after all that distress, after all that sin, after all Israel's disobedience, they're gonna receive double for all of their sins. Talk about grace upon grace upon grace upon grace in the person of Jesus Christ who is grace and truth. Now look at verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
make straight the desert, a highway for our God. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly what John the Baptist quotes when he's asked by the Jewish leaders, what do you say of yourself? And it says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 700 years before John the Baptist quotes this to the Jewish leaders, it is prophesied that out of the distress, out of the pain, out of the misery of Israel would come a voice crying in the wilderness, comfort is coming, hope is coming, a savior is coming, new heavens and new earth are coming. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse three. He, him showing up on the scene is proof that Jesus who came after him is indeed God who was in the beginning with God and was God. He is the word became flesh who dwelt among us. And in Jesus, we see the glory of God on display. John's a messenger. He had a salvation historical role. He came heralding the dawn of a new exodus. He's announcing that God is about to release people from exile in the days of Moses. And he calls people to repentance in preparation for the coming servant who is Christ the Lord. Look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist, his testimony, his reputation, he knew his role. He was a voice. He was a messenger. He was a preparer for something better. Because John knew who Jesus said he was, he quickly pointed to all that Jesus is. He, he, he downplays what he's doing and he props up the one who's coming after him. He minimizes his role and he magnifies the role of the person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist lowers his value so he can lift up the value of Jesus who's about to step onto the scene. And John, I was thinking about it this week, he's not necessarily a nobody. Like he, he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse three. And he was a, a prophet sent by God. And after 400 years of silence, he's the first person to speak on behalf of God on the scene. That's something. But what I couldn't get out of my head this week is that a somebody is a nobody when it comes to the glory of Christ. A, a, a somebody. I don't know what's on your resume. I don't know what ladders of success you've climbed. I don't know what you've done to, to get to where you are in this life. But whatever it is, a somebody is a nobody when compared to the glory of Christ. So look at your own life for a moment. What about you? What would your answer be to the, the Jewish leaders saying, who are you and what do you say about yourself? You might be thinking like John the Baptist, he was a prophet. I can't say I'm a prophet from God. John the Baptist, he had a, an Old Testament prophecy about him. So he just quoted that verse and he let that speak for himself. He was defined by Isaiah 40, verse three. You're like, I can't point to a Bible verse that says who I am. And I would say, yes, you can. Because the New Testament is full of scripture that defines you 
And if you would let the Bible define you, it will give you a testimony worth telling. Just pick one. You gotta let the Bible get in your heart and resonate in your heart. What do you say about yourself? How about 1 Peter 2.9? Our, our men were studying it this week. It says this, you, Christian, are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people for his own possession. Now that's something. That's crazy. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a people for God's own possession. Don't let it go to your head. Because the purpose is not I'm saved so that I can get to heaven. The purpose is so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You weren't saved for yourself. You weren't saved for just a good life in heaven someday. You were saved to make much of Jesus. So start proclaiming all that you're not and proclaim all that he is because he's the only one that put you in the light anyways. Pick another one, Galatians 4, 6 through 7. Because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That's something. God's put his spirit in you because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants to dwell in you. He wants to empower you. So you are no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, then you are an heir through God. Isn't that awesome? What do you say about yourself? I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of the king. He's put his spirit inside in me. He's empowered me. Every benefit that Jesus has by being the only begotten son of God, those benefits have been given to me in my sinfulness, in my imperfection, because I've been adopted into the same family. Maybe you're here and you're like, I have not, I can't say those things about myself. I can't claim the Bible's promises because I have not put my trust and faith in Jesus. I, I'm still checking Christianity out. I'm still living my life for myself. If I got really honest with you and showed you the deep places in my heart, I would tell you I do live for myself and I don't wanna live for God. All of us have been there. And, and here's what you need to understand. The Bible defines you as well. The Bible defines you if you're unregenerate today, if you've not surrendered to the Lord. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If you have not surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're spiritually dead. You're following the course of this world. You're going the way of the world rather than the way of God. You're living for Satan's kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And there can only be two kingdoms. And you are by nature a child of wrath, the Bible says. You're storing up wrath for yourself because the wrath of God is gonna come against all ungodliness. But Ephesians 2, it goes on and it proclaims this, but God who is rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, he makes us alive in Christ Jesus, and it's by grace that you are saved. What do you do with grace? You receive it. What do you do when you receive it? You believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Namely, he is God who became a man, and then he died in your specific place on a cross and rose again from the dead so that you could trust him, follow him, bow to him, and worship him for the rest of your life. And then you get an identity, when that happens, when that becomes your testimony and your story, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared beforehand and so we should walk in them. A true testimony for Christ reminds me who I am 
so that I can point to Jesus. And John the Baptist's testimony, it's all of these things. At the root of a kind, this kind of testimony is a humility that can only be placed there by the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Here this morning, to encounter the worthiness of Jesus is to humble ourselves and bow to him as Lord and King. If you can get honest today and say, I have not bowed to Jesus as Lord and King of my life, I don't live for him. It's because pride has blinded you from his sovereignty and his righteousness and his holiness and his grace. Pride has you so focused on what's down here. Pride has you so looking down on yourself and on things and on people that you fail to look up and see how small you really are. I think John the Baptist is one of the greatest examples of humility that the world has ever known. He's a somebody who became a nobody for the cause of Jesus Christ and I wanna follow in his footsteps. And guess what? Jesus says that you can. You can be like John the Baptist. You know that verse uh, where Jesus said that John was the greatest? Look how it finishes, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Jesus gives you an invitation today to be great, not by the world standards, not for your own personal gain, to be great when it comes to the standards of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And it looks like lowering yourself, bowing down and surrendering your life to Christ. So here's where I wanna close. I want it to be practical for you. I wanna give you three ways to be humble that we draw out of John the Baptist and his testimony in this text. Three ways to be humble. Number one, redirect glory to Jesus. Redirect glory to Jesus. That's what we see John the Baptist doing. They ask him some questions about his reputation. He just wants to tell about Jesus' reputation. He doesn't, he's not so concerned about what he's there to do. Yeah, he's baptizing with water, but he's all about Christ, redirecting the glory from himself to Jesus. So I don't know what you've done in your life or what you've accomplished or who looks up to you. Maybe you're an executive, maybe you're a business owner, maybe you're a stud athlete or a superstar student, or maybe you're just simply a mom whose kids absolutely adore you. It's always an opportunity to redirect glory to the one from whom you draw your strength. <laughs> Every time you receive a compliment, it's a chance to say thanks and to point someone to Jesus. Every time someone encourages you, Every time when you're feeling down about yourself, if, you, if you're constantly beating yourself up and thinking about yourself, then redirect all of those thoughts to give glory to Jesus Christ. That's why he's placed you here. That's why he saved you so that you could proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Let it be a mark of your life. Boy, that guy just always wants to talk about the Lord. He just always wants to give glory to, to his God. I'm just trying to be his friend. I'm just trying to be nice to him. That, that's great. Let the love of Christ exude from your life, but redirect glory and adoration and praise to Jesus. I, I don't know much about um, Brock Purdy, the, the quarterback of the 49ers, but what I've seen of the man this week is he is a, a humble man. Like he's playing on America's biggest stage. He's a, a quarterback leading the 49ers. He's a quarterback in the NFL, which comes with some respect. I mean, that's something. 
But every time I see the guy, he's known as Mr. Irrelevant, which I love. We should all take that title. But what, what I love about him is every time I've seen an interview with him, he's just giving glory to Jesus Christ. He's like, I, I've had to work for what I have and I get to play football, but I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved my life and put me in Christ. And I'm thankful I get to play football, but glory to God. I mean, that's what it's all about, y'all. Redirecting the glory. I don't know what position you're in, but give glory to Jesus. Number two, be defined by the Bible. Many are too prideful to let an ancient book define their lives. So a lot of times, because we don't look into these things, we say statements like, how do you know that that's all word for word true? And how do we know that it's not just like ideas about God or good men wrote it down? How do we know it has been preserved and all of that? Listen, it's gonna take faith, but, but the Bible has been preserved. It's been breathed out by God and every word has been preserved and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in your life. And if you will just hide it in your heart, not only will you not sin against the father, but it will start to define you. It will start to define your identity. What's it mean to be a child of God? I'll tell you, look throughout the New Testament and go to every passage that declares who you are now that you're in Christ. And then pray that the identity of those scriptures would be rooted in your heart and in your life. And that in humility, it would keep you worshiping God and it would keep you on mission. That's exactly what John the Baptist is. He let Isaiah 40 verse three specifically define him. I'm just a messenger here to prepare the way for Jesus. Guess what? Jesus is coming again. And if he saved you, you're just a messenger here to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus until he comes again. So you get to pick up the role that John the Baptist came and started by proclaiming to everyone that the king is coming. So surrender your life today to follow Christ. And the third way to be humble, get as low as you can. Get as low as you can. Bow down. Once they asked him, why are you baptizing if you're not Christ? And Elijah, look in verse 26, one more. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So the word worthy in the Greek is axios, and it gives us a picture of a balance scale. You know what a balance scale is? It's like those old scales, and they would put weight on one side, and then you would bring something valuable, and you'd put it on the other side. And when it, when it evens it out, you know what something's worth. And, and what... John the Baptist is proclaiming, like John's like, I baptize with water, so put that on the scale. But he who comes after me is Jesus. And when Jesus gets on the scale, it never balances out because nothing, doesn't matter what you've done, what you've built up, what you put your hope and stock in. At the end of your life, when you take all of that wood, hay and stubble and you put it on the other end of the scale, it ain't gonna balance out because Jesus is King and Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to him. So what John does for us is he gives us a picture. Y'all, I'm here baptizing with water, but the one who's coming after me, I can't even, I can't get low enough. That's how worthy he is. I can't humble myself enough. I, I can't, I mean, this is about as low as I can get and I'm untying the guy's sandals. If I were to get any lower, there'd have to be no floor beneath me. But Lord knows that's, 
how low I need to go when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about your faith, Christian in the room today, person in the room today, until you get to this place in your heart, maybe physically, it's at this place that you'll stop worrying about everything else. It's at this place that you'll stop being anxious about the things of this world. It's in this place that you'll stop worrying about your reputation. You'll stop worrying about your clothing. You'll stop worrying about what other people think of you. You'll stop living for the approval of man. It's in this place that you will meet Jesus and you'll see his worth and his worth that's greater than any other worth that the planet has to offer will humble you so low. And yet the Bible proclaims when you lower yourself, it's an opportunity for Jesus to exalt you. It's an opportunity for Jesus to lift you up. When you are quick to proclaim all that you're not and just simply be focused on all that he is, then you will live a life of worship. Then you will live a life of surrender. Then you will live a life beholding the glory of Christ. So let it be true, let it be so of us. Come on, let's stand to our feet and let's pray together and respond to the Lord. Father, I'm just moved to adoration today, moved to worship this morning, moved by John's testimony. to be focused on the glory of Christ and nothing else. Forgive me, Lord, for when I make life about myself. Forgive me, Lord, for when my thoughts are consumed with me. Spirit of God, would you, would you let some of those selfish thoughts even fall off now in my heart? And would you cause me to cry out to you and bow to you in humility? Lord, thank you for the way that the testimony of the saints often spur us on to continue in our faith. Lord, I pray that just as John shared who he was not and all that Jesus did for him, Lord, would we be quick to do the same as brothers and sisters who are all going through different things, who have different walks of life, who have different struggles, would we be quick to share with one another our testimonies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. Lord, would you make us unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I pray for those here today who, who may think I'm embarrassed of my testimony because I've, I don't have this radical thing. I got a boring testimony. I think John the Baptist had one of those. <laughs> he was all about Jesus from the day he was born, it seems. Lord, would you help that to be true of our young ones in this church? Would you spare so many young kids and so many students here from, from the way of the world. God, would you spare so many students from going headlong down paths that will destroy their lives. God, if in your grace you could spare every child at Gospel City 
the pain of, of running down a road and hitting rock bottom only to see your grace, if you could just uh, lead them into the gracious presence of Jesus here and now because of faithful parents and faithful Bible teaching and faithful worship of Christ in a healthy church, then Lord, do it. Let the revival be among our children. But Lord, help us never to forget that our first love is Jesus Christ. Help us never to get so focused on what we've done or what we can accrue or what we can get our hands on. And would you just keep reminding us, Lord, in your grace that this life is not about us. May we behold the glory of Christ and may it give us so much less of this world and so much more of heaven. Jesus, we thank you that you are on the scale and we thank you that no one is worthy besides you. So in this place today, we proclaim all that we're not and all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Come on, let's sing this.